0: Welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Amanda Scott, your host at this place on the web where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution. And this is the second part of our podcast with Finlow Castain. Who is the host of the FarmGate podcast and the founder and CEO of Farmwell? He is also one of the few people I have ever spoken to who has real depth and breadth in understanding of how we can feed ourselves, how we can restore the absolutely glorious abundance of life to the world around us, and how, in doing so, we can step back from the brink of the climate and ecological and social and economic catastrophe into which we are currently racing. So as we head towards COP26, and we all are doing everything that we can energetically, politically, spiritually, emotionally, to ensure that our world leaders do get the problem, people of the podcast, please welcome Finlow Costain. So in a minute, I want to head us towards looking to a future that is regenerative and that works. But just before we get there, you mentioned about the livestock aspect of regenerative farming and um, the the feces and the urine and trampling into the soil being an inherent part of building the organic matter. And I'd really like to just address that a little bit, that with your GWP metric, because so many people state that a plant-based diet or a vegan diet is the only way forward, and it worries me a lot. A lot of the statistics that that have been generated about the devastating impact, particularly of beef cattle, are based on feedlot cattle in the States, where they're on concrete, and they're factoring in the carbon effect of mowing down bits of the Amazon to plant the soy to feed the feedlot cattle. And it's a terrible abuse of statistics. So can you talk to us a little bit about why pasture-fed livestock are an inherent part of what we're doing, if they are, or if I'm wrong, tell me that I'm wrong
1: Yeah, and and just you know, by the way, I saw an article this morning that was talking about the way in which so many of these plant-based alternatives and uh, and, and alt meat uh products are actually owned by companies that are owned by you know the big, big meat, meat meat corporations. Absolutely. So um if we're talking about the difference between intensive agriculture and agroecology, then to me, one of the really important things to understand is the role of methane. and. You know, for a long time we've been told, haven't we, that methane is is a terribly bad thing, and that cattle produce, they burp and fart methane, therefore they are bad. And there's been so much focus, um, you know, across the media on the role that cattle play in driving global warming. So I think we have to understand the difference between fossil methane and naturally occurring methane, and I think that's probably the best place to start. If we're talking about methane that has been produced through um, millions of years worth of geological function and that is all Coming out um, and being released very rapidly in the same way that we've done with oil. Yes, that's a really bad thing, and so you know we need to be really careful to transition away from gas um, and towards wind and solar um, because fossil methane is is a real challenge. However, when it comes to naturally cycling methane from cattle, no, it isn't a problem in the same way, and and this is something that has confused farmers for for decades. You know they've heard people telling them that that their cows are bad, and they haven't understood um you know why and i think this is you know one of the drivers actually um of of climate change denial when people don't understand um what it is that's being challenged where they think that they 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 understand these processes and somebody's telling them that black is white then it it doesn't, doesn't help people to believe in the problem that we have. Hmm. So now, um, out of Oxford University, um, Professor Miles Allen and his team at Oxford Martin, you know, who are at the forefront of, uh, of climate research, Miles was uh, one of the lead authors on the IPCC's 1.5 degrees report. Three years or so ago, they developed a new metric called GWP-STAR, and it was a revision on GWP one hundred. Now, GWP one hundred is the standard metric. It's not. It doesn't. It's. It's not there in law. Nobody has to use that metric, but it's become the standard metric for analysing um, the 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 carbon people's carbon footprints, and it it measures carbon dioxide emissions very efficiently, very effectively. But it then tries to understand other major greenhouse gases such as nitrous oxide, such as methane, as if it were carbon dioxide. But methane particularly ruminant methane, enteric methane from cows, operates in a very different way. Carbon dioxide has maybe a thousand year half-life. It's active in the atmosphere for a very long time. Nitrous oxide has an active life, 500 years or so. The active life of methane is about 20 years. And so if you've got a herd of cattle, and it's say say it's 100 cattle, and that herd of cattle has been more or less the same for the last 100 years or so on that that patch of land, um, certainly over the last generation, then although the methane emissions continue, because of this 20-year cycle there's no additional warming happening. The emissions continue, they hold warming up, but they don't contribute new warming. Right. And when we understand that, suddenly we have different land use choices. Because if we think about the UK and the emissions from agriculture, uh, I think about 50 per- 57% of the emissions um, in 2018 uh, f- related to agriculture were from methane. Okay. Uh, and so that looks like methane is the big problem. It looks like the thing that we have to fix. And if we're gonna fix methane, it means that we need to micromanage what cows eat. Mm. Um, We need To reduce the number of cows, micromanage what they eat. And so that becomes a justification for bringing them indoors out uh, and away from pasture, intensifying those systems. Uh But the trouble is that in intensifying those systems in order to address methane, we're using more concrete to build more barns. Um, We're uh, relying on intensive arable (sighs) crops Uh, nitrous uh, with nitrates being put on them to uh, to produce the feed that then uh, feeds
0: the calf and you're losing the mob grazing effect
1: and you're losing all these mo- all, all these all these other effects as well and and so gwp100 has been driving an intensification of agriculture, um, and it's been doing it supported by all kinds of other, you know, different ideas that are uh, that, that have been supporting that as well. So, you know, there are many people um, in academia, in government, who support this idea of land sparing, where you intensify agriculture, you intensify feed production into ever smaller parcels, and then you use other bits of land to grow trees to sequester carbon, then you use other bits of land to rewild, where what I want to see is is land sharing, is agroecology, where in terms of those individual um, outcomes, I mean, you know, pasture is never likely to sequester as much carbon Mm -hmm. as a Sitka spruce plantation but actually that pasture if it's managed regeneratively um, with livestock in there is going to do those things I was talking about earlier on but it's actually it's you know if you've got maybe trees put in a 10-15 percent depending on that land then you're going to sequester as much carbon in that system of pasture better biodiversity, improved soil health, 10, 15 percent of trees as your standard broadleaf woodland in the UK, which again is counterintuitive. We think that a woodland is sequestering more carbon, but actually really well managed pasture land with some trees integrated is absorbing as much carbon. And so what GWP star, this new metric that accurately characterises um, methane does, is to show us the opportunity to deliver agroecology. Yes. It shows us the inefficiency of the metric which is commonly used in order that we can better understand the way that livestock exist in a system. And the IPCC report hmm. that came out um, in August was really clear about this, although government across the world still shy away because they don't know what to do with the information. It doesn't fit the narrative, and narrative is terribly important in politics. But but the report says really clearly that GWP 100 overstates the value of ex- of existing methane by a factor of three to four, and it undervalues the importance of new sources of methane by a factor of four to five. In other words, it's just a completely crap metric. So why on earth aren't we using an accurate metric so that we can understand land use?
0: Brilliant, brilliant. I did read a paper uh, probably four or five years ago about methanotropes in the soil. If you have living soil, there are methanotropes that take in the methane that the cows are erectating and actually use it to build soil structure. And so even less of, you know, because they do these studies on cows on concrete and they, they kind of put bags around their faces and they don't look at the systemic stuff that's going on.
1: One of the challenge of academia is, you know, p- people are extremely good at studying um, quite small things really deeply. in Isolation,
0: yeah. i not not good at systems.
1: And, and, and what we need to do is to is to recreate that, is to reconnect the dots. And 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 that's, you know, I mean, politicians are really well placed to do that because, you know, very few of them are expert in, in anything particular. What they are is fantastic generalists. You know, they have to understand an awful lot about an awful lot of things very rapidly. And so we need to listen to the scientists who have fantastic knowledge about this one thing in isolation, but then listen to other scientists and then listen to practitioners on the ground so that we can draw. All these things together and get to where we want to be and you asked me about the global uh, the global metric mm. that sustainable food yeah. trust have been working on and you know carbon is of course part of part of that but what they're trying to do um, and you know and we've worked on this uh, as well and we've contributed actually to the work oh, that really? sustainable food trust has been um championing here. And FAI has been working on metrics. Uh, So FAI farms who I I work alongside and provide an awful lot of the veterinary and sustainability expertise that I draw on in the advocacy work that I do. Um, You know, we've we've all been looking at different metrics. But what what they've been trying to do is to say, well, a metric that works well in the UK might not necessarily work well in the Yemen. so, So let's try and look at metrics that um, that account for sustainability in the round. That look at the biodiversity elements, the climate change elements, look at the adaptation elements, the water elements, the farm animal welfare elements. Look at the social elements for people and the the type of jobs that they have, whether they're good jobs or mm. or, or just monotonous, repetitive jobs, um, and whether people have a pension, you know, as part of that package, for for example. And so it's it's a series of metrics, and I forget how many different categories there are. I think there are 14 categories, or at least there were 14. At the point at which I, I last read through the, uh, the work. And then there are some submetrics. But what they're trying to do is to say these are the key metrics when you are measuring um, the impact of agriculture. If you are wanting to deliver sustainability, you want to see progress. Um, outcome progress against as many of these as possible. And so stop fixating on inputs, stop telling people what they need to do to achieve such and such, put a bit of trust and a bit of faith in individual farmers and land managers to know their own land and their own businesses, and also empower them to better understand their land and businesses by saying, this is the outcome that we want, better water infiltration, more worms, more carbon, for example, um, and then give them the opportunity to go and solve that problem and then reward that outcome, if at all possible, at the end
0: of it. Brilliant. Beautiful. We might do an entire episode on that that particular metric because it does look very interesting. It looks remarkably like Kate Rayworth's donut economic model when I look at it on the screen. I doubt it's accidental too. So thank you. I would really like to see if we can build forward to a vision of how the future could be if everything that you are proposing is taken on board. And I'd want to do this in the context of a report that came out within the last couple of days, and I will need to go and find it and put it in the show notes. But essentially, they looked at the commitments that governments have made towards their Paris Agreement goals. And three governments, uh, Russia, Brazil, and one that I can't remember, their stated commitments would see their carbon emissions definitely increase. But the the underlying nature of this and the way that the numbers panned out was apparently that instead of getting to net zero by 2030, which is what we absolutely have to do for your children not to grow in something that is the equivalent of Handmaid's Tale, we are heading towards a 16% increase, six percent And Boris Johnson also bless his little cotton socks, apparently on the plane back from the States, was asked how much he rated the chances of COP26 in Glasgow being, quote, successful. And nobody defined the metric of success, and he said 60%, 6-0. And given that he's very well known for talking things up, my feeling is that that actually means zero, but he doesn't want to say that yet. Which is deeply distressing on every level. So let's pretend that we could... Imagine the best outcome for COP that the Chinese premier wasn't massively pissed off by the nuclear shenanigans of the UK, the US, and Australia, that the French prime minister wasn't massively pissed off by the same unnecessary action two weeks before COP, whatever, and that everybody was actually working together on this, that everybody got the necessity of it. How could we restructure the global systems? To work, I realise that's a very, very big question. But I also think that you are in the realms of thinking about this, and you're one of the few people who might have some answers. I mean, God, it is a big question,
1: and and I think you're going to have to help me help me through this a little bit, Manda. The, I mean, I think you know part of the the challenge around COP is. That it's all very well for people to make commitments, and as you say, we know that even just with the commitments that we have at the moment, that we're we're not yet in the right ballpark by any means. Um, but just making a commitment is irrelevant. So there's a website called Climate Action Tracker, uh, which is looking not just at where we would be with the commitments um, going into COP, but where we are currently with the policies that actually exist on the ground at the moment. Um, And we, you know, we touched on this earlier, didn't we, around the challenges of delivering rapid change in a democracy. And this is, you know, this is what most of the world is grappling with, is how can we get to where we need to be without crashing the economy, without collapsing society, and while retaining the permission of the citizens in any given nation to continue putting in in, in place our, our plan of government, and and so every government, every political party is, is wrestling with this. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, if I'm completely honest with you, I think we're going to get it wrong before we get it right, and we're going to continue getting it wrong before we get it right.
0: We haven't got time to get it wrong, Finlow.
1: No, it, we we don't. But I think that we are stuck in a cycle where we will start to see some degree of societal collapse before people then manage to accept that um, the radical change to their own individual lifestyle is necessary to the point at which they keep voting for the people who are making their lives more difficult. And this is the challenge um, for government. I think governments understand this to an extent, which is why they keep kind of fudging the issue and and why delivery is slow. Go on, Amanda.
0: Yeah, because I have a question on this. So so I went to a, a public meeting with our local parish council last Thursday night, and we had a lovely chap from some other parish council, agglutination of parish councils, coming to talk to us about how we were going to persuade everybody locally to change their behavior. And and my blood pressure was 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 doing very bad things to my head. Because it seems to me, this is the Al Gore thing, that we all need to change our behavior. And yes, we do. But I can change my behaviour as much as I like, and my government still thought it was fun to have a Red Arrows fly past at the convention down in Cornwall in the summer that was supposed to be about climate change, which blew my entire carbon budget for my entire life in five minutes. They're still opening an oil field in the Shetlands. They're still pouring billions of pounds of our money, technically, into fossil fuel companies. I can change my behaviour. I can go and live in a straw bale hut on the west of Wales and eat stuff that I've grown on the land. And all my family can do the same. And it will not matter at all if we still have a government that doesn't get it. So but the government could people wouldn't have to change their behaviour at all. They could they could tax fuel properly. They could they could stop their incentives to fossil fuels tomorrow they could stop HS2 tomorrow. Apparently, you can't get concrete anymore in this country because they've taken over the two major concrete producers in order to pour concrete into a train line that we are never going to need, that won't be ready for another 50 years. That won't be, you know, If it's ready in another 50 years, as you pointed out, the whole society will have collapsed. And my real fear is, if we get to the point of societal collapse, It's too late. We won't have the infrastructure to make the changes that we need. We need to use the fossil fuels that we've got now to be building wind turbines or to stop building stupid, expletive deleted roads, because I like our podcast rating, and we could put that money into fixing the roads that we've got and building electric vehicle infrastructure if we think electric vehicles are the way forward. I'm not convinced about that, but that's a separate conversation. I'm ranting at you, and this is, I'm asking you the questions, but it's not just about individual people changing their behavior. It's about the government joining up its thinking and not starting nuclear adventures. My understanding is that currently our defense CO2 spending isn't counted because that's a political secret whatever we call security, national security secret, and I've I spent short amounts of time in the army. I've walked around barracks that were built in the 60s, single-skin brick, kept hot enough that everybody is walking around in t-shirts and shorts, and then we walk outside, and that's nothing to what they spend. You know, I, I live in a place where when the people in East Anglia get a little bit tired in the RAF, they come for a jaunt out to Wales and back in their jets. And, and then we're not counting that in our climate emissions budget. We have to stop.
1: And, I mean, you're completely right that uh, it is governments that need to deliver the biggest change and that, um, you know, a few individuals, a small percentage of individuals can do everything under the sun to change their own lifestyles. But if the government doesn't legislate for change, it's entirely meaningless. Um, and so from that perspective, uh, you know, the most powerful thing that an individual can do you know, much as it's really important to change your energy supplier to uh, to, a, to a green energy supplier, to one that hasn't gone bankrupt in the last week. Indeed, <laughs> the, the most powerful thing you can do is vote. And uh, and and you know, at the last general election, I I kind of said to as many people as I possibly could, I've I've stopped supporting. Labour, Lib Dem, Tory, whoever it is, I don't support any of you anymore. What I support is the party that I believe is going to make the biggest difference in terms of climate change impact, uh, in terms of green policies. And if we all did that, and we supported government when they made some of these really quite difficult decisions that they need to do in order to show leadership, then we'd be in a very different place. And the vote remains a very, a very powerful thing. But beyond that, I think yeah. <laughs> You know, it's it's difficult for anybody. I mean, it's frankly even a prime minister or a president um, to put in place every change that's necessary. What we can do is work with people who are actively making change despite government, despite other things that are going on, which is, you know, brings us back to land, brings us back to the farmers, the agroecological farmers who are doing fantastic things. And, you know, as part of that, this is this is the system reform that I want to see and that I'm part of you know, l- the NHS, education, transport, those are things for other people uh, you know, to work on. But in terms of land use and food systems, we've talked a lot about farming, but the system itself needs to change because there's a whole life for food once it leaves the farm gate. Farmers only mm-hmm. earn about 9 or 10% of the retail price. Yes. So what's happening yeah. in the rest of the food system? And we need to allow greater complexity in that food system as well. We need more small and medium-sized farmers rather than allowing and encouraging the aggregate of farms so that we just have fewer ever larger farms we need shorter supply chains that aren't reliant on great big global just-in-time um, uh, processes that we actually have much greater national independence in terms of the food that we're producing and eating increase seasonality you know bring seasonality back so that you know we're eating things that can actually be grown in a country at a particular time and really reduce that food waste which you know when you've got young kids you know, is really really difficult. But at the same time, you know, for most of us, we can do we can do something around that. And that'll require new infrastructure. As I was saying before, around methane and livestock, livestock in them of themselves aren't a problem. If those livestock are produced in uh, fossil fuel hungry systems, that's a problem. So let's get back to pasture based ag- um, um, agroecology. Um, but we're going to see or we should see a redistribution of livestock around the country, which means that we're going to need more small with really good welfare outcomes to achieve that, so we need to invest in that infrastructure. And you know, and it's quite interesting looking at the difference between what Wales is doing post Brexit mm. and what England is doing post Brexit, because. England had a fantastic conversation you know world leading conversation in those sort of three years or so after the 2016 referendum that was led by Michael Gove you know and uh, and 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 it was it was a really exciting time because we were genuinely talking about how we could transition farming from this you know sort of uh, working um, despite nature to a farming working with nature and that you know the conversation was fantastic but but the policy delivery I think is going to be significantly undermined in England specifically, by this sort of Tory ideology, this commitment to market principles, which to an extent can work with water. Yes, there are water companies. There is a reason for people to invest in farms to hold back water so that there isn't flooding. But I'm not quite sure how it works with other public goods that have been identified within there, how the market functions there. And so I think that what we're doing gets undermined there. And it also gets undermined by that other thing that I said the Tories tend to do, which is to underfund. So the single Mm. farm payment, the basic farm payment was around ninety quid an acre, the Sustainable Farming Incentive, which is this bridge policy uh, until we get to twenty twenty four when the new um, when the new funding structure is uh, is properly fully um, unveiled and, and put in place, soil is the big key element in there. But it, but farmers are going down from, you know, they've been asked to deliver soil improvement, which is fantastic. I mean, that's absolutely the right thing to deliver. But instead of 90 quid an acre, which wasn't enough, farmers are going to be paid in the region of between 10 and 30 pounds an acre. I mean, which is just crazy. And, and here's, a, here's a figure for you. Farmers in this country have been pilloried by the press because they get $3.1 billion of taxpayers' money, just administering central government, not local councils, just central government costs 11 billion quid. Farmers manage more than 70% of the British Isles. And we are paying them per citizen less than a pound a week to do that. You know, we get the countryside that we pay for, and we're paying nothing for it. So it's no wonder farmers are having to make really difficult decisions. We I mean, to, to me, we need to at least double the amount of funding that's going out there for farmers to deliver these public goods. And in Wales, what they're doing is rather than creating these market mechanisms, to deliver public goods. They seem to, I mean, they still haven't delivered it. They still haven't decided finally what they're going to do. But there are uh, two key pillars of of funding. One is a fund um, which will be per farm, but it may well be a kind of an acreage payment like we used to have paying farmers for managing land better. And I don't know, but there was certainly a conversation around having really strong entry points to have access to that funding. For example, something as simple as doing a carbon footprint on your farm. It is astonishing that this is not yet mandatory, but it would be mandatory to get that payment. But then there's a second pillar of payment, which is investing in the marketing, in the infrastructure, in those new small abattoirs, et cetera, in those new cooperatives. um, and distribution systems uh, to make sure that food is available from local farmers to be distributed regionally. And so you've got a very different approach in Wales. And to me, it sounds very much more hopeful that in five years' time, Wales Uh, And Welsh farmers will be in a much better position to deliver that improved sustainability. And my chief worry and the worry of many people, especially with the trading arrangements that we have, where um, the government keeps being told by its own MPs that it needs to have a level playing field and that um, uh, food coming into the UK needs to be produced to the same standard as as food that's produced in the UK itself, that we are likely to see more and more farms going out of production and more and more... um, Um, zoning of land um, for trees here, for farming there, ever more intensification. And so all of those big hopes and ambitions from that three or four years of conversation uh, when Gove was uh, was the Secretary of State at DEFRA are gonna be undermined by um, this failure to pay properly for the public goods that have been identified and by this obsession to deliver uh, market mechanisms to create that, that um, uh, to, 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 to pay farmers to, to do what they need to do. And that's a big worry because what we need to be doing is to be paying farmers to deliver multiple outcomes around biodiversity, improve food and nutrition and climate change mitigation and adaptation.
0: That's very distressing, but it's very astute. And I guess the difference with Wales is that they have a statutory requirement to make every decision with a view to what the impact will be for seven generations. Absolutely. Which was the astonishing thing that happened when Welsh independence was gathered. So supposing a miracle happened and you were appointed advisor to the government that was listening, you know, let's pretend that we had the brightest and the best in charge at this time of total species emergency, and that they wanted to listen to people who had the best ideas, and they came to Finlow-Castain and said, okay, we'll do whatever you say. What do we look like when your kids, not necessarily are our age, but are in their 20s? So by 2040, how does Britain, briefly, what does it look like in terms of the land? and the way that we produce and eat our food.
1: In terms of of land and agriculture, we will see a lot more of what people might call messy farms. Uh, so, so Claire has talked a lot about this at FAI. That she's had, you know, farmers and other people coming onto the land at FAI complaining about the fact that it now looks messy uh, because some of the grasses are growing to four or five feet high, and you know, because the sward is so diverse uh, and because it's, the land is becoming so productive. But actually, you know, that's that's not waste. It's not mess. It's productivity, and it's being used to uh, to produce food and biodiversity. In all these. Of the things, and so we will see um, more messy hedgerows, bigger hedgerows. We will see more diversity in the sward. We will see livestock um, across more of the country, out in the fields rather than indoors in sheds. Certainly during the spring, summer, and autumn, we will see in the east of England livestock being introduced into those rotations um, with arable crops. We will stop just seeing monocultures, um, and and if people are going out walking, they will expect to see something different happening year on year in the fields that they're walking through. We'll be able to see a patchwork re-emerging uh, from this kind of large patchwork that Britain has, has, has become to sort of smaller fields being put back in place. And, and I don't want to sound like I'm technophobic because, you know, robots and data can be used to help us with that. And there's no reason why when you have, um, you know, small electric tractors, which are effectively drones, they can work quite quietly throughout the night, um, you know, following the guidance systems that they're using, avoiding dikes and ditches, um, and and work in much smaller fields than they they were before. Um, uh, When we see uh, the bigger fields, we'll see lines of fruit trees and and other trees um, sort of interspersed between the arable cropping. We'll see, um, you know, much greater diversity on an individual farm, and hopefully... We'll be seeing many more um, uh, sort of smaller shops, many more um, delivery systems that are focused on local food, bringing local food to local people. And people themselves will have embraced seasonality, will have embraced diversity. You know, I went round um, uh, high school um, just to have a look at a high school with my lad because he's, you know, he's 18 months from, from that transition. And, you know, we went into the domestic science um, Uh, area, the cooking area. My goodness, it's so different to when I went to school. You know, we made a cake and that was it. Didn't really know why we were making a cake. We weren't taught about the function of an egg or the nutritional content of that. But that's what they're all focused around now. So my hope is that people will have a much better understanding of food and how to make sure that that nutritional diversity is getting inside us and our families um, and that we're we're buying it and supporting um, local producers. Now, that sounds, you know that's quite a generic answer um and um, you, you know it's 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 slightly utopian but at the same time i think it's really important and you know but at the same time big companies need to be part of that change as well we talked about mcdonald's before big companies have a lot of buying power and they can be part of that change. We are just now starting work with um, uh, big companies um, across the world in a in a global um, uh, dairy project, looking at how the dairy industry, which is ever more intensive at the moment, this is a farm well rather than the farmgate podcast, um, how they make that transition to being regenerative, how long it's going to take to do that, where those chief barriers are, where the hits are that they're going to have to take. If the prices are going to rise, how are they going to manage that relationship with customers or change portion sizes so that even if the cost of the raw material increases, that that those portions are staying at a similar price. So there's all kinds of challenges in there that need to be done. But big companies, small producers and customers All need to be part of that transition. But what will Britain look like? It'll be beautiful. It'll be. A lovely yes. um, biodiversity-rich place where you go out and you can hear insects around you, where you are walking through long grasses with a huge diversity of wildflowers and um, and species amongst that sward, where the hedges are full of uh, you know fruit and haws and uh, blackberries and, and things like that in the uh, in the autumn time, um, and where. There are were, there were livestock um, and orchards and and all these things, you know, smaller field sizes, all these things that to an extent we used to be, but managed in a modern, um, uh, more futuristic economy. Fantastic. Um, I, I could just keep on. I, I, I realised I, I could just keep on that sentence because it was getting longer and longer. Uh, can I just finish that sentence again? Yes, it was lovely, though. But go on. Looking at something that provides echoes of what the countryside used to look like, but using modern techniques, modern understandings, um, uh, up to date science to make sure that that land is properly productive and that the food that's produced from that land is getting to people through a whole multiplicity of different different channels. So through supermarkets, through restaurants, through direct sales um, between customer and farmer, but also a big growth in online um, and, and the distribution around the country as well. And perhaps most importantly, that we'll be seeing much less food imported to Britain and much more of the food that we eat actually produced in this country, because increasingly it's not just important for us, but it's important for every nation to do that in order to avoid the kind of conflicts that may arise over the next 20, 30, 40 years over food scarcity if we don't embed that independence um, as quickly as we possibly can now. Fantastic.
0: Oh, Finlow, that's, that's absolutely solid podcast gold. Thank you so much. We are going to have to stop there. I could talk to you forever, but maybe we'll come back for a second go sometime. Thank you very, very much for coming on to Accidental Gods and to point everyone to listening in to Farmgate because it's always this inspiring. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. Pleasure to be here. And that's it for the second part of our conversation with Finlo Costain. Huge thanks to Finlo for the depth and breadth of his understanding, for the intellect that he brings to this, and for the huge passion that lies behind everything that he's doing. This is one of the most inspiring conversations I could imagine, because Finlow has answers. We just need to find ways to make them happen. So if you're listening to this and you have any influence at all, even if you only send a link to the podcast to your MP, and beg them to listen to it, then please do it. Because we are right on the edge of the cliff. And we need to be at net zero by 2030, if not before. And the whole of our agroecology system, the whole of the way that we relate to the land, the whole of the way that we feed ourselves and become integral parts of the web of life, is so foundational to how we are going to step away from the edge of the cliff. So do what you can, and do it today. And we will be back, as ever, next week, with another conversation. In the meantime, thanks to Cara C. for the sound engineering, and for the music at the head and foot. Thanks to Faith Tilleray for the website and the tech. You will find us all at accidentalgods.life. The show notes will be there, the links will be there. Access to other podcasts will be there. And access to our membership program, which enables you to connect more deeply to the web of life and to ask the questions, what do you want of me in this moment? And to act in real time to the answers. And if you know of anybody else who would like to be part of the generative dance of the world, please do send them this link. In the meantime, that is it for now. See you next week.